Let's uh, prepare our hearts and minds to read God's word, Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 through 11. This is God's word. It says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have... In- you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? And if you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seems best to them. But he disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness." For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Let's pray. Father, we praise you for being a loving Father, for being a God that is not distant from us, but intimately involved in all of our ways. We praise you for sending Jesus to be our perfect example of faith, to be our our forerunner, the one who blazed the trail in front of us to show us what it truly means to live and walk by faith, submitting to your will. Holy Spirit, I thank you so much for tonight, for what you already have done, what you're doing right now, through the reading of your word, and pray that through the proclamation of your word, that you would teach us, train us, that we would walk away from here bearing much fruit for your glory. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So in the first two verses, we're instructed to look to Jesus, right? To, to fix our eyes on Jesus. Um, as a student pastor, over my tenure of being a student pastor, we lost two students in our student ministry to cancer. Um, one of them, was a 17-year-old senior in high school. His name was Marshall Baker. And um, I use this example of faith a lot because I really haven't um, witnessed a greater one in my life. Um, Marshall was, uh, was a healthy young man um, who loved the outdoors. Um, he was super involved in his school, um, extracurricular activities in the community. He served in the community and in the church. I loved his family. Um, and, uh, and was well-liked by all, great reputation. Um, in, in February, we were at D-Now. He was healthy. And then in November, we're having his funeral. And he had a brain tumor that destroyed his optic nerve. And so for the last three to four months of his life, um, he was completely blind. Um, he went from like 180 pounds to like 115 pounds. And I'll never forget the last time I walked into the hospital and saw him in the bed, and his body was just emaciated. He couldn't see. 
Um, and I said, I was like, Marshall, man, what's, if you could say one thing to all the students back at church, what's the one thing you would say? And he said, don't lose your focus. Keep your eyes on Jesus. How could Marshall say that? How could he say, don't lose your focus, keep your eyes on Jesus, if he was completely blind? Well, the reason he could say that is because Marshall knew that spiritual sight was more important than physical sight. You see, the eyes of his heart, his affections, his heart affections were fixed on Christ. He was obsessed with Christ. He was transfixed with Christ. He treasured Jesus. He knew that the things that you could see were temporary, but the things that you could not see were eternal. He knew that. He lived it. And over the past two weeks, we have seen from chapter 11 these incredible examples of faith, right? All these examples of faith point to the ultimate example of faith, And this week, I was personally taken aback and just staggered by this thought that we are not just to have faith in Jesus, but we are to marvel at the faith of Jesus. Have you ever thought about that? Not just to have faith in Jesus, but to to be amazed at the faith of Jesus. When we think about faith, we usually use language like we need to trust in Jesus or put your faith in Jesus and, and this is right and good, right? Jesus is the object of our faith. Jesus is the substance of our faith, the foundation of our faith. I mean, we are to trust in his miraculous birth, his perfect life, his sacrificial death, and his victorious resurrection. But something that the Holy Spirit used this week, Hebrews 12, 1 through 2, to do was to open my eyes to the faith of Jesus. Jesus being our pioneer, Jesus being a trailblazer, Jesus being the perfecter of our faith. Don't just think about faith in Jesus. Think about the faith of Jesus. Like we've already learned, every previous example of faith that we see in the Bible is from an imperfect person. All of those examples in chapter 11, all of them were imperfect people, but Jesus was a perfect human. He was a person who had perfect faith. He never failed. We should marvel at his faith because he always trusted the Father. There was not one moment where he did not trust the Father. There wasn't one moment where he had a lapse of belief, where he doubted. Not once, not a second. Even when tempted, even when going through trials, even when suffering, he never doubted the Father's plan. He always trusted the Father. He always kept the faith. Jesus was and is our perfect model of faithfulness. He exhibited a lived faith, a faith that endured through all things. We're going to see how important that is in our passage tonight. He is our supreme example of persevering faith in God's redemptive plan. Commentator Richard Phillips said, Jesus is not only the example of our faith, he's also the object of our faith. The cross is not not only the greatest example of Jesus' faith, but also the focus of our faith in him. We can't get over the cross of Christ. We need to fix our eyes on Jesus because he is our source of faith. And more than anything else in in the scriptures, I feel like our lives are um, illustrated as a, a race, 
Like we're on a race. We're, we are to be, to be running uh, this race of the, of the Christian faith. We're instructed in this passage to run with endurance, the race that's set before us all. Everyone knows, right, that it takes discipline to run a race, even if you've never ran a race in your life. I'm pretty sure that everybody probably has ran a race in your life if you ever participated in field day in elementary school. It was the greatest day of elementary school ever, right? But, and you face obstacles. Probably all of you have been through an obstacle course before. Maybe you've done a Tough Mudder or a Spartan race or a mud run or something like that. You've experienced obstacles in a run, in a race, right? We know that, that our lives are likened to a race, a, a journey, if you will, a pilgrimage that we're on, and it's not an easy road. It's not like flat. It's not that we're always going to face obstacles. And so what do we do when we face trials, when we face obstacles, when we face suffering on the journey? Well, the writer of Hebrews reminds us and he reminds his audience who's facing persecution as he just told them of all of the examples of faith, of massive persecution that we're probably never going to experience, like being sawn in two, that we should consider Jesus. Look at verse 3. Look at that with me. Consider him. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. So, Christian on this journey, are you weary? Are you, are you weak? Consider Jesus. Have you grown faint-hearted? Do you feel like giving up? Consider Jesus. Are you discouraged, lacking confidence? Consider Jesus. Do you need boldness to face opposition and struggles and temptations? Consider Jesus. Constantly look to Jesus, the perfect model of disciplined, faithful endurance. We've already been instructed to consider Jesus in Hebrews chapter 3. I know that was a few weeks ago, but in Hebrews 3, if you remember, in the first few verses, it says, Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession. But that word for consider in chapter 12 is a different Greek word than the author used in chapter 3 for consider. In chapter 3, he wanted us to think about Jesus as our perfect high priest, to confess him as Lord. The word consider there in chapter 3 was to observe this idea of meditation, to think on, to focus your mind on, think carefully about Jesus. But here in chapter 12, he uses the Greek word, and I'm going to butcher this, Zach, so you can correct me later. Analogzomia. Yeah, I know. Sorry, that's my southern translation. But in English, it's where we get the word logistics. So think about logging something into a spreadsheet. The point is that we should take stock of Jesus's life and death. Consider how he lived. Consider how he faced adversity. Consider how he didn't give up. Consider how he endured struggles. When I was in college, I trained a lot um, more than I do now for triathlons. If you don't know what a triathlon is, it's a swim, bike, run event. And with any endurance race, um, any endurance sport really, it's important for you to keep your eyes on the horizon. Right, so when you're in the water swimming, it's important for you to keep your eyes on the shore so you know where you're going, even though you feel like you're going to drown. 
And, and when you're on the bike, it's important for you to keep your eyes on the horizon and maybe pick out something to where you can work towards and then pick out something else once you pass that object and work towards it and keep your eyes up. And when you're on the run, you just are thinking to put one foot in front of the other so you don't die. So that you endure, endure to the end because you really, really, really want to give up. It's really easy to lose heart. It's really easy to forget what you're doing and just stop. It's really tempting because it would be easier to quit. It would be more comfortable to stop running. I think it's a good illustration of the Christian life and of the Christian faith. Every Christian is a spiritual endurance athlete. And so what the Lord wants us to see in this passage is that considering Jesus produces disciplined endurance, which results in holiness. That's the main point of this entire passage. Considering Jesus produces disciplined endurance, which results in holiness. Jesus endured more than just the cross. Look at the passage. It says he endured hostility during his life. He never asks us to walk through something that he doesn't understand. Jesus had disciplined endurance because he knew we would not. We lack self-control. We lack faithfulness. We lack trust in God's word. We struggle, as in verse 4. Jesus never struggled with sin. So the author implores us to look to Jesus. Consider that Jesus never gave up. He never lost heart. He never became faint. It's tempting for us to give up, to stop the race. That's why we need to fix our eyes on the horizon of Christ. Remember the cross. Consider that Jesus experienced worse than we'll ever experience. He, he experienced worse mocking, worse persecution, worse trials, worse temptations than we'll ever experience. In verse 4, the illustration shifts from running to boxing. Look at verse 4 with me. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. We struggle. One of, one of our greatest sins is unbelief, is, is doubting. Well, we struggle against sin. We fight against sin. We, endure, we have to endure. We're called to endure. We need to embrace discomfort like an athlete. We need to deny ourselves the comfort and ease it would bring to just give up. We have to remember in verse 37, 36 of chapter 11, all those examples of those who endured hostility for their faith. They shed their blood. There were martyrs, right? Verse 4 is saying, hey, you guys, we're not martyrs yet. You haven't died yet for, for your faith. You haven't shed your blood yet for your faith. Jesus did. Jesus endured to the point of shedding his blood all the way. Our ultimate example. Al Muller said this, considering what Jesus Christ endured will help us endure in a world that continues to grow more and more hostile and opposed to Christianity. We must fix our eyes on him if we are going to persevere. Considering Jesus produces disciplined endurance which results in holiness. In the remaining verses, it seems like this is a big shift that he's going to do. He set it up for us to talk about Discipline, the discipline of the Lord. And in verses 5 through 11, we're going to see the author use a lesser to greater argument 
for the discipline of the Lord. And discipline is the key term in this entire section. And we need to remember that this is not, when you think of discipline in this section, this is not God punishing you for your sin, all right? If, if a Christian gets cancer or some other horrible news, that's not God punishing them. If a Christian gets persecuted or faces trials, it's not God seeking vengeance on them for some lingering sin in their life. Jesus already took our punishment on the cross, so when God allows some trial or struggle into your life, it's him training us, not divine punishment. Right? How can we say that? Because Romans 8.1 says, right now, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I thought this was a pretty powerful point. Pastor John MacArthur said, he said, in punishment, God is the judge. In discipline, God is the father. In punishment, the objects are his enemies. In discipline, the objects are his children. In punishment, condemnation is the goal. In discipline, righteousness is the goal. There's a massive difference, right? God, God is not like punitive or, or, or retributive. Like, like one of my buddies, he had a, a terrible, we, we both had a terrible view of God growing up. When he would like mess up and he would sin, it, um, he would, uh, and then something bad would happen to him, he like sprained his ankle. He's like, oh man, that's because I, I, I did this sin over here. I'm like, God, God did not make you sprain your ankle because you sinned. Or man, I got another flat tire. The, God just, he's telling me to stop to slow down. I'm going to read verses 5 through 6. Look at it with me. Have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him, for the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. This is a direct quote from Proverbs chapter 3, verses 11 through 12. We all know Proverbs is one of those books in the Old Testament that is in the wisdom genre, right? So the author is trying to remind his audience as they face trials and struggles to don't forget you're God's children. Don't forget that. This is huge, right? Don't forget that you are the children of God. Don't let your circumstances cloud your vision, that you forget who you are. Don't lose heart. God loves you as his own. That's why he's disciplining you. Don't misuse or dismiss or disregard the discipline of the Lord. Don't take the discipline of the Lord lightly because his discipline is a form of discipleship. Proverbs teaches us that foolishness is bound up in our hearts and it needs to be corrected. Now, we've all seen that kid who's never been told no. Everybody just thought of somebody, right? We, we all have seen that kid. You're like, that kid's never been told no. His parents give him anything they want right? Or, or maybe you've had the thought in the grocery store or the restaurant or in the mall or wherever, you see that kid and you're like, they need a spanking. That kid has never got a whooping. Maybe you've had that thought. Maybe you haven't. One commentator said that verse 6 is, is kind of like a heavenly spanking. Now, I know spanking is a very controversial topic in our culture today, and I don't want to spend too much time on it, but I think that it's worth a small rabbit trail. Um, and by the way, this week I'm going to be putting um, in our email, in the Red Oak email, further resources for discipleship. There's going to be a ton of links um, to articles we can't even go into right now, like um, why parents spank, 
why parents don't spank, why parents should spank. Would Jesus spank a child? Those are great names of articles. You should probably read those. Um, they're incredible. And you can even press play and somebody will read them for you, which is, yeah, that's not even lazy. Um, also, I, I want to recommend, just a side note, um, if you've never read Shepherding a Child's Heart, it's a great book by uh, Ted Tripp, um, specifically chapter 11, which talks about spanking. So, um, if you've never got a whooping. So some, some consider physical discipline like antiquated or taboo. Uh, some, some people are afraid to spank because they've seen it mishandled or abused, which it can be, right? I personally believe that parents can spank and sin or they can spank in righteousness. I think it's very possible to do one or the other. You can spank without sinning and you can spank in sin. Uh, according to the Bible, parents who do not discipline their kids don't love their kids. That sounds kind of harsh, but listen to God's word. Proverbs 13, 24, whoever spares the rod hates his son, but he who loves him is diligent to discipline him. Proverbs twenty-two fifteen: folly is bound up in the heart of a child, but the rod of discipline drives it far away from him. Proverbs 23, 13 through 14, do not withhold discipline from a child. If you strike him with a rod, he will not die. If you strike him with a rod, you will save his soul from Sheol. So discipline is not to harm the child or to anger the child or provoke the child, but to correct rebellion. It is an expression of love. Discipline is necessary until a child learns self-discipline. And without discipline, children and adults will all go down the wrong path. We know that. We left, if we are left to ourselves, we tend towards self-destruction, not self-discipline. Everybody knows that. In Hebrews 12, 6, the author uses the word chastise. To chastise means to reprimand or scold for behavior, to express disapproval. And chastisement can take on various forms, ranging from verbal admonishment to whoopings. Some instances call for verbal reprimand, and some call for spankings. Discipline teaches us that choices and decisions have consequences. Certain lessons can only be learned by corrective discipline. Now, I want us to understand that there's different types of discipline. There's corrective discipline, instructional discipline, and preventative discipline. Corrective discipline is exercised when a rule or standard has been disobeyed or broken. Instructional discipline is exercised when we are teaching to impart knowledge. And preventative discipline is exercised when we lay down boundaries or guidelines for good and for the child's protection. Now in verses 7 through 11, our last remaining verses, Here's where the author uses a less to greater argument. He's comparing and contrasting parental discipline with discipline from the Lord. He says, it is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which you have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. So this is a reminder yet again for those in Christ who've trusted in Jesus that you've been adopted into the family of God. And we have a heavenly father who loves us and therefore he disciplines us. We get disciplined because he loves us. And that little word there, 
if is a very scary word. If you aren't disciplined, what does that tell you? You're not in the family. That he's not your father. I had this thought while contemplating this text, probably because there's horses across from where I live, and I get to stare at them often. But a, a wild horse, have you ever, I mean, you've ever seen a wild horse? They're a little bit different than tamed horses, right? A wild horse is what some would say is unbroken. An unbroken horse is ignorant, foolish, even dangerous to other people. A broken horse, however, has a master and is wise. A broken horse is useful, cared for, healthy, strong, disciplined. So are you a wild person who runs around breaking barriers and living like your Lord, your self-appointed, self-sovereign individual? Or are you somebody who has come under the yoke of a loving father? You know who your master is and you submit to him because you know that he has your best interest in mind no matter what you're facing. From verse 7, it's clear that God wants his people to endure in the faith. Pastor Kent Hughes says the word discipline comes from the root word generally meaning to teach or instruct as one would a child. Often it means to correct or punish as it means here. Broadly, it signifies much of what we would think of as discipline for the purpose of education. We experience God's education through hardship or affliction. And I don't know about you, but the, the older I get, the more people I talk to, it seems like people learn more about God when they're in a valley than they do when they're on the mountaintop. When they have experienced hard things and they walk through darkness in the valley of the shadow of death and they experience that he never leaves you, he never forsakes you, then when everything is peachy in life. Let's look at our remaining few verses, 9 through 11. It says, besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us as we respected, and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good, that we may share in his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness for those who have been trained by it. I grew up in a home where I got whooped, and I'm thankful for it. Because I needed to get whooped a lot. Because I always learned the hard way. So me and my brother got spankings a lot. And I can attest that the scripture is true. I respected my parents. Now, not in the moment, right? I would usually try to get out of it and put a plate or a book in my pants. It would not hurt as bad, not thinking they could see it. Um, and then you get more spankings. It never works. But um, I respected them now because it's true. Later... It produced in me fruit. I learned my lesson, right? I have two little boys, Titus and Case. Right now, they're 10 and 7, almost 8. And I can say with confidence, we have seen fruit in their life. That spanky paddle hasn't come out in a long time. But we had one with actually Hebrews 12, 11 written on it. in a permanent marker. It's still there. 
we got it out this morning during, during family worship. It said, y'all remember this? And they were like, yeah, we haven't seen that in a long time, right? But like, they don't hate me and Allie because we used that on them. They actually love us more because we disciplined them. Not, not just because we spanked them, but because after we spanked them, we, 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 we walked through and we, we held them and we hugged them and we welcomed them in. We got to share the gospel with them, right, and, and explained why. So there was understanding and there was love there. And they respect us because of it. No, no it's not easy, right, but it's, it's, it's possible, it's necessary. We are called and equipped to do this. But just like my parents weren't perfect, I am not a perfect parent. It's easy for parents to react out of anger, to yell at kids, to spank in anger. Right? Parents can lose their temper and sin and discipline, but our Heavenly Father never does that. God's discipline is better than any earthly parent's discipline. Listen to this once again from Pastor Hughes. He says, sometimes earthly fathers are too severe, other times too lax. Sometimes we show favoritism. Sometimes we punish the wrong child. Sometimes a child got it because the boss gave it to us. But God has never made such a mistake. No discipline of his was ever capricious or ill-informed or ill-tempered. None of his discipline has ever been misplaced. Man, that's good. God's discipline is perfect. It's always teaching, always training, always shaping, always maturing our faith. It's for our good. And it's not just for behavior modification. It's not just so we'll straighten up and obey the rules. That's not what it's for. The passage says it's so that we share in his holiness. It's for righteousness' sake. It's for godliness to be formed and shaped in his children. And that's what verse 10 says, that discipline is for our good. Being corrected and trained is not fun, but it is necessary so that we become more and more like Jesus. Discipline has a purpose. Its main goal is holiness. God trains us for the purpose of holiness and that we would share in his holiness. Now, we all know and can relate with the truth that discipline is not fun, as verse 11 says, right? It hurts, but it's good. It's for peace. It's for wholeness. It's for godliness. It's for faithful endurance. William Lane says that the preacher in Hebrews here is referring to disciplinary suffering and relates the theme to pilgrimage. You remember that the context of this entire passage is the audience being tempted. They're struggling. They're facing persecution. They're facing hostility because of their faith in Jesus. And he wants them to consider Jesus and to endure through this suffering. Lane says the expression disciplined suffering has reference to actual suffering, which may be inflicted by those who are hostile towards God, who find in the people of God a target for their hostility. These sufferings become disciplinary when the, God makes them a means for leading his people to spiritual maturity. Discipline is always for our maturity. It's, it's not so that we remain immature, but so that we be mature, so we grow up, so we learn to be self-disciplined. You remember what the Apostle James said in his epistle when he's writing to 
his Jewish audience as a leader in the early church. He says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, endurance. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God promised to those who love him. So both James and the writer of Hebrews wants us to see the purpose for any trial that followers of Jesus face. The point of God training us is godliness. It's holiness. It's not happiness. It's holiness. Here's a great quote from commentator William Lane. He said, Jesus' own experience of the triumph through suffering provides perspective on the purpose of suffering in the Christian experience. The trials of the community are described as disciplinary in character. They've been assigned by God to those who are his children. There is a necessary and integral relationship between disciplinary suffering and sonship. Although Jesus enjoyed a unique sonship, he himself came to share God's throne only after he'd experienced the disgrace of the cross rather than joy. Christians should be prepared through faith to share in his exposure to active opposition and suffering. The recognition of the fruitful role played by suffering in the maturing of the relationship with God undergirds the appeal for endurance in pursuing the goal marked out for the community. The goal, the discipline of suffering, the goal, the discipline of trials is godliness. Just to kind of bring this home, I spoke with a few of my friends this week who've walked recently through some very difficult trials in their lives I just called him up on the phone. I said, hey, man, I know you've been through a lot, and I want to know what, looking back, now that you're on this side of it, what did God want you to know? What was God trying to teach you? What did you learn about God? What did you learn about yourself? The first gentleman I talked to had testicular cancer, and he said, when you hear the words on the phone, you've got cancer, he said, it's shocking. Everything in your life just kind of stops. He said it's a humbling time. It's a vulnerable season of life. He said that he had to lean on his faith more than ever before. And he asked the Lord, what do you want to show me? Why is this happening to me? What do you want to teach me? I don't want to miss anything. And he said that the Lord was trying to get his attention. That he, that he was stopping him in his tracks and he was correcting a, a misdirection in his life that the Lord showed him. And he said, looking back now, I see the fruit that God was bringing about in my life. He said, and I quote, my prayer life has increased. My faith was deepened and strengthened. I learned that faith in Jesus is real and faith can get you through anything. God is real. God is good. He is faithful and his promises are true. Be anxious about nothing. In all things, let your requests be made known to God. We had tons of people praying for us, and that comfort was unreal. Everything that comes into our lives has to come through his sovereign hands first. Nothing surprises God. That's some pretty good lessons learned, right? The other guy, he also had cancer. And when he got the news, he immediately said, why not me? Why, there's no reason I shouldn't have cancer. And one of his friends actually said to him, he said, man, you do everything right. 
Why would God allow this to happen to you? He said, you go to church. You're a great dad. You're an awesome husband. You're a great friend. God ain't going to let anything bad happen to you. And he said, wrong. God sent his son to suffer and die on a cross. I ain't special. He said, when you're going through something like this, you have a special platform. People watch you and see how will you respond to this in your life. You call yourself a Christian. Will you keep the faith? He said, I don't know how people go through trials without faith in Jesus. Those are some pretty powerful testimonies. Keeping their eyes fixed. Considering Christ. In closing, here's some practical things we can do and just some questions to consider. Remember our main point from the passage, consider Jesus produces discipline endurance, which results in holiness. So how do we practically consider Jesus? What does that look like? Very simply, read the Gospels. When's the last time you sat down and just read through a Gospel? And you observed Jesus' life. And you considered how Jesus lived his life. Not necessarily what he said. Yes, focus on his words. But how did he live his life? Do you consider how he trusted in the Father completely? Do you consider how he submitted to the Father regularly? Consider how he endured hostility and suffering and endured the cross. Do you know do you remember that you've been adopted into the family of God? Do you know that you're his son or his daughter? Or have you gotten lost in the circumstances of your life? Do you accept or dismiss God's discipline in your life? Are you taking it lightly? Do you realize that there is a purpose? God always has a purpose. He never wastes anything. Consider Jesus. We'll have endurance leading to holiness. So my prayer for us is that we would have our eyes fixed on Christ, endure everything that comes our way, and that we would consider him until we see him face to face. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you that it is sufficient it is enough for us that you have given us everything that we need, that you have provided for us incredible examples of faith. And more than that, you've provided for us a Savior, a Redeemer, one who would come and live the life we could never live, die the death we deserve to die, be buried and overcome the enemy of death. I thank you so much that you have given us your word and that Jesus, you say that you are the resurrection and the life. And if we would believe in you, even though we die, we would live because we have faith, we trust in you, the one who overcame all things in life and in death. Oh God, we believe. Help our unbelief.
belief. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.